podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Tottenham's new chapter begins. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what has been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week, once again, we've got a full house and that means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Dan. Um, looking forward to having another chat with an, another action-packed uh, Premier League weekend. So looking forward to getting into this one. Fantastic. And of course, I cannot forget your strike partner either, can I? Because it means that supplying the, the supply line or the actual assists, the other half of the answers is Drew. So Drew, how have you been this past week? I'm doing much better than Keppa. I'll tell you that much right now. No one's looking to sell me. <laughs> we'll get to uh, that talking point later on in the show. So before we do, I'll do the social media bits first. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join that very elite members club. You can find me via Apple by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform... Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like it, leave a review. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. Well, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. And as you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing. One which is free to enter and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. The odds are really great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's go to the top of the table. And the fact that Liverpool have made it 42, yes, 42 Premier League games unbeaten. And Cole, although there was no Sadio Mane, it seemed there was no problem whatsoever for the Reds. Yeah, it kind of convincing performance in the end, wasn't it? Um, I, you know, all credit to Southampton, though, because they, they didn't make it easy for Liverpool. You know, in the first half, they were causing them some problems and, you know, Ings and Long were kind of getting in at them at the back a little bit. And, you know, when it got to half time at nil nil, you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, Southampton have had some good results away from home. Could they about to, you know, bring up the biggest shock of all? But in that second half, once Liverpool got that momentum going and then, you know, they, they get fortunate with the penalty, don't they? You know, it doesn't get given straight up the other end, score a goal. And then from that point on, they kind of just too powerful and too strong for Southampton. Um, and then in the end, obviously, the result, it, it was a comfortable finish for the game and one that they'll be really pleased with because, you know, the way Southampton have been playing away from home, that, that could have been a potential banana skin, but they've brushed that one aside. They move on. Um, and, you know, you just can't see this Liverpool train being stopped at the moment by anyone, can you? Um, and, and in fairness, full credit to them because they're playing some really good stuff. Absolutely. And Drew, obviously Mo Salah will get the plaudits for that game after getting a double. But there's one man who seems to be capturing more and more praise over these last coming weeks. And that is Jordan Henderson. So Alan Shearer said that if the play of the season was decided, you know, in these last few days or this week, he would give his vote to the midfielder. Would you agree with that or would you be looking elsewhere? I personally almost always favor goal scores when it comes to player of the year, Ballon d'Or, something like that. So for me personally, I'm always going to choose someone 
that has those numbers. Most likely someone like Mo Salah, like Sadio Mane. With that being said, I understand the argument for Henderson. Or a couple years ago, right, when Luka Modric won the Ballon d'Or. To me, those guys, they're great players. They're phenomenal. They play their roles really well. Jordan Henderson this year has been fantastic. But he doesn't have the stats, for me, that are important enough to get an award like that. Again, I see where he's coming from. Just take N'Golo Conte not too long ago, right, winning player of the year. I understand the argument, and I think they're completely justified in voting for someone like Jordan Henderson. For me, I'm not going to do that. If you're a midfielder, you got to be a goal-scoring midfielder. you got to be an assist-making midfielder a lot more than Jordan Henderson is. So for me, he's not in player of the year contention arguments. But again, for someone else, I can't understand the argument. Yeah, I guess it's always that weird sort of thing about a player of the year award in a team sport because you've got different players doing different primary roles. And it's like, well, what is a better function of a role? Is it someone who gets 25 goals? Is it someone who keeps, you know, 18 clean sheets? It's always a, a difficult balance. And like you say, Drew, it's always, I guess, numbers driven. And that's why defenders never really used to win awards because stats didn't allow defenders to look as good as they were. Now that's sort of changed with so many more metrics in the game. But you are right, it's the course of... Really, Henderson has done nothing to sort of um, dissuade people otherwise. But if you're really purely looking at a stats-paced point of view, then I guess you could look elsewhere. And Carl, obviously, Liverpool were good value for their win, but it wouldn't be this show without some more VAR chat. So, what did you make, firstly, I'll give this one to you, of the decision not to award Southampton a penalty at the start of the second half, which I guess was magnified just seconds later, because Liverpool went down the other end and scored? I thought it was a really poor decision, Dan, because, you know, when, when you look at it, and obviously, as you say, we can all understand the fact that the referee can't see that in real time, but the replay clearly shows, doesn't it, that as Ings gets past, um, is it Fernandinho? Or not Fernandinho, Fabinho. That's right, yeah. You can clearly see he does have another nibble at him, doesn't he? You know, he does kick up to try and stop him. And that obviously then forces Ings into kind of the stumble, which, you know, ultimately, you know, he tried to stay on his feet but then ultimately can't. And, you know, I, I don't understand how you can look at that replay when it's slowed down and see it and not award a penalty. Because for me, it was a clear penalty. You know, that, that second kick out was the one that you go, yes, that's the one for me that shows, you know, he's tried to stop him. You know, it's a foul. It's a penalty. And, you know, who knows where that game goes from that point on. So I think that's a really poor decision. And again, this is one where, I would love to, you know, these guys who are looking at these monitors, either call the referee over and ask him to have another look, you know, or, you know, these guys need to come out and explain why they haven't given a decision like that. Because, you know, when you're talking about a season as well, where people are thinking Liverpool have had a lot of favours from VAR, it just does send people down that conspiracy theory route, doesn't it? That, well, the top teams won't get stuff given against them. Whereas, let's face it, if that was at the other end, and that's Mo Salah, do Liverpool get that penalty when it's been reviewed? So I think that was a real poor one. And, you know, VAR, you know, whoever was looking at that should hang their head in shame. Absolutely. And of course, Drew, you know, you can't just sort of point fingers at Liverpool and this conspiracy theory, because really, they probably should have had a penalty in the first half as well. So what's your take on Roberto Firmino getting bundled over by Shane Long? Would you have given a penalty if you were in charge? So that one there as well, I'm definitely giving a penalty. I think both calls during this game, the VAR, I mean, the refs initially also missed, missed it, just like Carl alluded to. So, yes, I would have given them for both. But you know what? I do think, I know there's been a lot of, of clamor about, oh, 
VAR is always going in favor of Liverpool and, and things like that, it all works out in the end, right? Because look at the one with Firmino that we're talking about now. That one, to me, should have been a penalty, but you know what? That didn't go through. Or, I'm sorry, it wasn't called, right? So there was no penalty in the end. So this does kind of even out in the grand scheme of things. So I'm not going to be one of those people who screams that everything is going in Liverpool's favor because I don't think it really is. I think it seems like that because they're doing well. It's, it sounds like the rich getting richer. Of course the call went in their favor, so I think that's why people are up in arms. But in this match, right, you saw one on each side that – should have been called. And you know what? In the second half, Liverpool dominated the game. So while we can go back and debate these all we want, I think really it doesn't matter in the outcome of this game because Liverpool dominated that second half. And yes, it kind of kicked off with the one about Ings that Carl talked about. Um, but beyond that, Liverpool controlled the game anyways. So VAR calls or not, penalty calls or not, Liverpool deserved to win this match. Yeah, I think really it's more a bad day for VAR really than opposed to actually trying to give Liverpool decisions that they weren't merited. So I think you're absolutely right in that sense, Drew. So, Carl, now we enter this split week, uncharted territory, I guess. But how much of a benefit will that be to Liverpool as they look to go 50 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, well, you can only assume, can't you, that that for them now, any form of rest is good news for them because... The league is done, isn't it? Now there's no there's no possibility in my mind Liverpool can slip up. You know they can afford to lose six or seven games and still be in a commanding position. So the title is done now. Um, they'll obviously they'll be looking at records, won't they? And wanting to go the whole season unbeaten. So any rest, I think, is really great. I think the key for them will be they'll want to just keep this momentum going because the sooner they can wrap the title up it then means they can really purely focus on the Champions League and retaining that. And if you think about, you know, if you look at the couple of seasons Liverpool have had, if you now top that as reigning back-to-back European champions, convincing, not just convincing, but smashing the Premier League, and if they do it unbeaten, then you are talking about one of the best teams we've probably seen in Premier League history. Yeah, I think that is really what's on the table for them now. And I think, Drew, is that sort of accolades that are in front of them on the table, is that the thing that's going to keep them going? Because as Carl has quite correctly said, Premier League title race is done. There is no race. So how do you keep a team going when they've almost won it? Well, I guess if you're unbeaten, there's your next target. Being unbeaten, being invincible, being able to shatter records in the meantime, that's what they're going for. Because think about it. Right now, they've won every Premier League match but one. Arsenal's invincibles... We're not anywhere close to that. They had a ton of draws. And, and it's not to, not to badmouth them, but just to show how much better Liverpool are, how incredible they really are. They've played, what is it now, 25 games, one draw, I believe it is, right? That's right. So 24 wins. They're going to shatter the Invincibles record. And then could you imagine if they won a treble on top of that, like Carl alluded to, being back-to-back European champions, now, of course, winning their league. Last year they could have won the league on, what, 97 points or something absurd. I mean, with the league title wrapped up, and then if they do go undefeated and they do win the Champions League, possibly a treble, there's no argument that they're the greatest team of all time. Right now, we can still talk about it, but if they do end up reaching all of these milestones, they're by far the best team of all time. No questions asked, no debate, never. That's how good this team can be. And that's what Jurgen Klopp has to be banging into their heads every training session, every pre-match, halftime, and post-match talk. He has to be making sure that they understand they have a chance for something 
really that can be unmatchable, and they have not too much longer to go. Well, if you look at the wider picture, you know, they could win five trophies in this season. It's only really the Carabao Cup, which they couldn't win physically because they were trying to win another one. So really, I think Barcelona won six. They won them all in 2009 under Pep. But again, that's only because there was one cup competition. I think, obviously, the fixed list is a bit more favourable to the Catalans. But you really are looking at, you know, some of the greatest ever teams in this sort of um, calibre. So, you know, nothing is up for... Well, off the table, as we've said before, it's really going to be just a, a measurising season for Liverpool. And you do wonder just what records, how many they'll break. And if anyone ever will get close, this could be the defining chapter in English football, Carl, couldn't it? Yeah, I, I like I say, I, I think if they go if they go unbeaten, and as Drew said, not just unbeaten, but when you consider if they're going to win almost sort of like 37 out of 38 games, win the Champions League back-to-back, I don't see how anyone could argue that this will be the best side you've possibly seen um, in the Premier League history. And not just Premier League history, you're talking the entire history of football because there won't be many teams. And this run doesn't just start this year, does it, Dan? We're looking at last year as well, you know. They, how they didn't win that league last year, you know, that is that was so unfortunate because I think they only lose one game last year, didn't they? Yeah. So you're talking about this team now that just don't seem like they can be beaten. And that's even if they're not having a good game. You know, they put a couple of youngsters in the side. You're just talking about a team that, you know, are taking world football by storm because, you know, there isn't a team, I think, now that you wouldn't back Liverpool to beat to be honest. You know, in any game Liverpool play, you'll be thinking Liverpool are probably favourites here. And those sorts of teams don't come along that often. And this is a special side that, you know, I don't even see it breaking up next year. It's not like this is a team that you think is going to be broken up in the near future. So they, they could go on and, you know, they could just smash all records all over the place. And, you know, it's all going their way. And, and it's credit to them because, you know, Klopp has put together a really good side. You know, I think this is where if you're looking at people like Henderson, Shearer's probably saying player of the season because he probably feels Henderson is the one that's driving this team and possibly, you know, setting the standards, not maybe necessarily always on the pitch, but behind the scenes, setting the standards for how they behave, the professionalism and how, and how they do it all. So, yeah, really, it's a joy to watch them. And, you know, as much as we can set rivalries aside, we should all be watching them with envy and just applauding what they're doing. Which is exactly it, isn't it? I think, really, fundamentally, you've just got to be grateful that you are witnessing something fantastic in front of your eyes. You know, if you love football, this is really what it's all about. And, Drew, let's say if they do go unbeaten, Cole sort of intimated that last season they only lost one. That could be one defeat in 76 matches. That really is a legacy that's built in front of them. So how do they keep that legacy going? And if they do, how many tweaks does it need in the summer? You know, that's exactly what I was thinking about as Carl was talking was how far can this go? And I think this core team that they have, right, for really now this is what, probably the third season? They went to Champions League final loss. Last year won the Champions League. Now this year they're going to win the Premier League. How long can this team stay together? I mean, really, in... Modern football, when managers are only there two or three years, I know Klopp is, is a bit of an anomaly staying longer. I really think it has to do with him staying and this core team around them. That does include Henderson. I think that includes Firmino. Salah obviously is in there. Probably Fabinho now, Allison, Van Dyke. If you take out some of those core players, then I think the team dismantles and they can't really operate as well as they do now. 
However, I still think they got another year in them. I think they can keep the band together this season and next season. After that, I think it's going to be really tough to maintain this type of form. But I think they got this year. One more. Keep everyone together. You know, Alexander Arnold and Robertson as well. But I don't think you can replace half this team and be able to uh, continue playing at the peak of European and world football. I just don't see that happening. So, again, I think I, they've I think got the, another 18 months or so. I think the biggest problem they'll have, wouldn't they, guys, is that if you've won it all at a club, so if you take someone like Virgil van Dijk, he will have won it all now in club football. So at that point, then you've got the problem that will come up for them is does someone like him say, well, I now want a new challenge and now the lure of, say, going to Spain or Italy. That comes in because the guy now thinks, I can't win no more here. Um, so, you know, yes, I can win back-to-back Premier Leagues, but I've done it. And that, I think, will possibly be the biggest problem comes, is that if they win it all, will the likes of Mo Salah, you know, Mane, Van Dijk, will they just go, listen, yeah, I want a new challenge somewhere else, you know, the possibilities of living abroad, um, those kind of things. And that will be all that will probably stop them at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. I think their success might accelerate the eventual departure. You know, all things have to come to an end at some point. It's just a case of when it does. And obviously, whether Liverpool have a massive drop-off to where they are or not, I guess time will tell. But Man City, they are having a drop-off. There's no doubt about that. And the reason this title is all but one is because City failed to register any points against Tottenham on Sunday. And although Pep will be ruining a sixth league defeat this season, Carl, that's exactly the statement win that Jose Mourinho would have been looking for. Oh, 100%, Dan. You know, we, we were talking, weren't we? You know, we had, we had the games against Man United, Chelsea, and we kind of, you know, came up well short in those games. We weren't just short, we were well short. And those were the games where you were thinking Jose would want to get a really good win, you know, let the world know he's back and that he's still got it in him to kind of get these results against big sides. Um, and so far, it's kind of eluded him. But this weekend was the one where he can say, there you go. You know, in theory, what people still consider to be one of the best sides in European football and even world football have come to our ground. We've kept a clean sheet. We've beaten them. Uh, what more do you, you know, I'm here, you know, and this is, you know, the sort of stuff I want to achieve at this at my new club. So that was the statement win. You know, as fortunate as we were on the day, you know, City missed a hat full of chances didn't they where on another day we could have been looking at possibly being two or three down at half time even um, and on the wrong end of a result but we hung in there you know we showed some grit in defence you know and we've got that win and that could be a win that sends enough confidence through the side that kicks you on for the rest of the season and, and makes the top four race really interesting especially with the Spurs Chelsea game coming up soon and that one suddenly becomes a, a kind of six pointer for the top four race yeah I mean that was in my notes for uh, in a couple of questions time but you're absolutely right I think the way the results have gone this weekend that we'll get to Drew's boys in a short while but yes all of a sudden and I know Tottenham fans shouldn't be you know too optimistic because we have had our fingers burnt before this season but all of a sudden you just feel that win and the manner in which it came might just be the one that really ignites the top four race and I think it's going to be a bit of an honest battle now between the two clubs However, Drew, we go back to Man City and former Arsenal forward Ian Wright has said that if Guardiola doesn't bring home the Champions League this season, it's a failure for City. And that's something that we've discussed before. So there's no sort of real insight there. However, if that failure does happen, can you see either a sacking or a departure by mutual consent for Pep at the end of the season? Absolutely. I think publicly they'll say mutual consent or something to that degree. But I think behind closed doors, 
it's going to be that Pep is fired. They've given him all the money he's asked for. They've gotten him pretty much every single player that he has pursued. And yet, they are not favorites for the title this year. Part of it, yes, is because right we see their poor form uh, in, in several matches throughout the season, the amount of losses they have, uh, finishing right in this match against Spurs. But also in the Champions League, who do they have in the round of 16? Real Madrid. That's no easy task. They're no pushover either. So with City not even being favorites for the Champions League right now, with all the defensive problems they've had, all of their losses, I think the board has to be very disappointed in Pep because this is what has happened at pretty much every team he's been out. You, you, you have the Pep fatigue, so to speak. After about three or four years, that's exactly what Manchester City seems to be doing right now is you know, kind of hitting that wall. And if that's going to be the case, then for Manchester City, there's no reason to turn over to another year, have Pep there, if he's not going to get any closer to winning the Champions League after everything they, they've provided for him. So absolutely, I could see him getting fired behind closed doors. Again, I think in the public eyes, they'll probably say it was mutual consent or something to that degree to save his reputation. But absolutely, I could see this happening. So, Carl, let's focus on the game itself now. And we spoke about some VAR farce. Well, this one, I think, takes it to a new level, doesn't it? Because how much can we blame Mike Dean for, I guess, missing the penalty first time round, but not calling it back? You know, we've sort of mentioned about you should really have someone in your ear saying, no, don't let the, keep, the game keep flowing. So was it really the letter of the law stitched him up a bit, or has he got to take some of the blame for what happened at um, the Tottenham Stadium? See, see, I don't blame Mike Dean necessarily for the penalty incident because I think when you kind of, if you see that in real time and probably where he was on the pitch, there's enough where you may think that Aurier has won the ball in that tackle. So I, I'm always, you know, I don't like to bash referees in real time because, you know, if anyone who's ref the game, you see something happen in a split second and, you know, if you're behind the body or you're trying to look through legs, you may feel, and he may have felt, Aurier won the ball in that tackle. And as you can even see by replays, it's close. But I think, as you say, the game should never have been allowed to go on that far, to be honest. The point is, as soon as that's getting reviewed, if the VAR official thinks, hold on, I think we could possibly have a penalty here, then he should be in the referee's ear to say, can you stop the game straight away? We want to review this. If you let the game go on a certain amount, how long do we let a game go on now before we bring something back to be reviewed? You know, And we've quietly said, what happens if in that meantime Spurs had gone up the other end and scored a goal? Is that then being chalked out? Are we saying, no, sorry, scrub that goal because we're going back for the penalty now and actually all the scores are reversed? Or, you know, it, it's that can be where the farce comes in. And this is where, as supporters, this is not what we want to see VAR being implemented for. You know, the bottom line is, as soon as it was looked at one time, there was clearly, obviously, enough in the VAR official's mind to say, I think we could have a penalty here. That's where the game should have been stopped instantly. Then you take your time to review it and even ask Mike Dean to go to the screen so that he can view it again and see what he thinks. Um, this letting it go and then pulling it back that late, I think that massively has to be stopped because that will just cause massive headaches and massive drama at some point in the future. Absolutely. I mean, worst case scenario, it's not a penalty and you give a drop ball somewhere around the halfway line. And I don't think anyone in the ground would complain with that, would they? No, not at all. As you say, if it's stopped instantly and all of a sudden it's reviewed, even if it takes a minute or so, you, just, you think, well, OK, if we're getting the right result here, then great. 
But as you say, you then just drop the ball, don't you? And, and the game goes on. But the danger of letting it run and a team possibly break and score a goal, then that will just send fans into meltdown, won't it? We haven't seen that. But can you imagine the meltdown if we'd, if Spurs had scored during that time and then the game gets brought back and we're told, actually, your goal is being chalked off because this was a penalty here? Oh, you would have riots on your hands, Dan. Absolute riots. So, yeah, that was really poor and something that the VAR officials need to make sure it doesn't happen again. Eventually, Drew, obviously it did lead to a penalty, one that was saved by Hugo Lloris, although it seems seconds later we were set to go through it all again. So in the second instance, it wasn't a penalty. More importantly, as it wasn't, why wasn't Sterling given a second booking and his marching orders? Well, I think it would be because he didn't deceive the referee. And also, maybe Mike Dean thought uh, there was enough there for him to go down, at least in terms of contact. Maybe that's what he was thinking. But to me, I'm, I'm with where I think your head is at, Dan, in that if that's not another penalty, then it should be a red card for diving or some sort of, of card. Yes. It should be. Oh, that would have been – would that have been a second one? Yes. Because he escaped – that's right. Okay, it would have been a second one. That's right. And, and so, yeah, it should have been, absolutely. Me personally, I'm not against diving. I know it's a, it's a cultural thing and, and all of that. Um, but by the way the, the game is played in the Premier League – Yes, that should have been another yellow card for diving. But however, he was still there. What I think is is interesting here was after that, right? Both teams kind of get into a bit of a a, a melee. I guess I think is is too big of a word, but they kind of get into each other's faces a little bit. You see some cards come out as well for that. I think Spurs and Manchester City right now is bubbling into a bit of a heated rivalry, right? You have this match where the teams kind of got nose to nose at one point following this this exchange, and then you have the Champions League quarterfinals uh, last year. Right Earlier this season, there was a VAR call at the end of the reverse fixture. So I think this rivalry is actually kind of boiling over and, and starting to, to spill out and get very heated. And you saw it at different times throughout this match, especially where Sterling dived and should have been sent off for it. Exactly. I mean, you only got to add the Guardiola versus Mourinho constant subplot, which has been running for years, to add more fuel to the fire. And we're sort of you're absolutely right. We've got a bit of a uh, Titanic tussle. And, Carl, we mentioned sort of bookings. One of the players who got booked in that tete-a-tete was Zinchenko. And City are a club, I guess, well-known for tactical fouls, which sometimes you can appreciate. You know, it's the, the dark arts. It's what helps them win matches and ultimately trophies. However, that did seem to prove to be their undoing against Tottenham on Sunday. Yeah, well, you know, once he had that booking, you're then on a tightrope, aren't you, for the rest of the game. And, and let's face it, quite rightly... He was, you know, given another booking for the, the blatant block on Harry Winks. You know, he knows he's gone past him. And this is the sort of foul that's driven me mad over the years because this is, that is, if you like, a professional foul, isn't it? It's like, you know, the guy's going past you. You're just going to be- deliberately block him, hack him down. And that's the kind of card that, you know, some people will argue, well, is it a red? Or, you know, if you had a sim bin, that you would sim bin the guy for that sort of tackle. So, the fact he was on a yellow and then decides to do that, he's only got himself to blame because, you know, quite rightly, it was a second booking um, and he was off. And then, as you say, from that moment on, you know, the game kind of swung suddenly in Spurs' favour and we were able to get on top a little bit. And ultimately, that leads to us getting the two goals and winning the game. Um, so, yeah, you know, as you say, 
there's times where you you know you want to see your players make a tactical foul, but in something like that where you're getting involved in a melee where you don't need to and pick up a needless booking, um, you know that's where you have to ask that player and say to that player, you really needed to use your head. Was it worth picking up that booking just for that melee? Should you have just walked away and let it get get on with it? Um, because ultimately you've cost us the game potentially there. Because, Drew, if the penalty save got Tottenham fired up, the red card was definitely the game-changer. And we spoke about Steven Bergvine last week. And to be honest, debuts don't get much better than that, do they? Absolutely stunning debut from Bergwijn. Uh, I mean, I mean, the goal itself was great, but I thought also he played well up top, being able to interchange at times with Son and Lucas Mora. So I thought overall his performance was very, very positive. And then, of course, on top of that, the cherry on top, you have... Uh, the goal that was was huge in the game, pretty much the, it, it was the winner. Um, and this kind of circles us back around to something you asked Carl to kind of kick off our City and Spurs discussion was, you know, was was this a, a, a great win for Mourinho and Spurs? And I think it was because you see everything go right. You see Bergwijn uh, getting his goal, and obviously he was a great pick uh, to start the match. But beyond that, once Sinchenko got sent off for an absurd foul, then... That's exactly when Spurs pounced. That's when they took advantage of Manchester City. And that's what Mourinho teams do best, right? Usually it's hitting on the counter, but more in the bigger picture, they're pouncing on a vulnerable opponent. And that's exactly what they did to Manchester City. So Bergvine's goal, cherry on top of a great performance and a standout one for Mourinho, something that he and Spurs both really needed. Of course, if it's jubilation for Carl and I, Drew, unfortunately, you have to make do with more drop points at the weekend. So, although, let's be honest, a point at Leicester is no disgrace by any stretch of the imagination. So, what was your take on events at the King Power? And do you want to also expand on the Kepa scenario, which is playing out at the moment? Yeah, it is important, I think, and you prefaced it, which is great, that although Chelsea didn't play well, especially that second half, it is a point away to third place Leicester. So... You know, you can't really complain about that. But what the problem is with this match was the way Chelsea ended up uh, losing it. They did get two goals in the second half, but they were headers, right? The attack really petered out. Tammy Abraham is playing through injury because they don't trust Batshuayi. Giroud wasn't in the 18. And so Ross Barkley had to come on, and Chelsea played with a false nine for the, pa- or for the final 10 minutes or so. It wasn't a great performance, but again, it was a point away at third place. So you have to give him credit for that. But of course, the big story is Kepa, most expensive keeper in the world, getting benched. And honestly, he deserves to be benched. I think Lampard was justified. Kepa, statistically this season, has the lowest safe percentage of all Premier League keepers. Uh, He has, Chelsea as a whole, but obviously this means Kepa, have the most or the highest percentage of shots conceded for goals since the stat was being kept since 2003-4. So Kepa has not played well. Lampard justifiably sat him. But then, of course, Willie Caballero comes in, makes a huge mistake, leads to the second goal. And so now the question is, what happens next? Does Lampard really stick it to Kepa and continue to play Caballero? Or does he tuck his tail between his legs and put Kepa back in there? I think it depends on what he sees out of him. Reports are that he wants to sell Kepa and buy a new uh, keeper in the summer. If that's the case, then I think Kepa has played his final game for Chelsea. I think there's a strong possibility that he's going to ride the bench the rest of the season. Cole, from a Tottenham point of view, if they play Caballero for the rest of the season, that's pretty good news, isn't it? Because he's got a mistake or two in him, hasn't he? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you would sit there and say, wouldn't you, not having your number one goalkeeper, uh, you know, against a guy who possibly is, is, you know, known for making a few mistakes. He, you know, he can be reasonably solid, but there is the odd hiccup in there. Then, as you say, for the for the pack chasing, you know, disharmony and you know stories like this uh, are all you want to hear because you know that then in the background at that club there's going to be you know some grumbling, some moaning, you know, some dressing room unhappiness. And all that can just lead to is kind of a downfall in, in results, potentially. So, yeah, if you're the chasing pack, you know, Spurs, United, Wolves, those kind of teams, you're rubbing your hands together and saying, yes, bring it on. You know, we want to hear some more of this. So that, let's get these stories out there. And Drew, if I could add something real quick. Yes, mate. To, to put in perspective for everyone who doesn't watch Willie Caballero as much as I have just because he's played for Chelsea. Willie Caballero is the David Luiz of goalkeepers. <laughs> <laughs> quite good analogy so, every single game that I've seen him play it doesn't matter if it's Carabao Cup Europa League or Premier League including this one against Leicester every single time there is a moment when I think what are you doing no 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 every single match and so for, for you guys as Spurs fans or, or anyone else that's chasing Chelsea in the top four spot they should be licking their chops at Cavalero possibly playing and likely playing every single match from here on out for Chelsea well, to be honest, yes, I, I really am. So let's hope from a uh, Tottenham point of view that is the case. Right, that is the first half. Don't go anywhere because there's some big loserpool news on the other side of it. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. And you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool, pick a loser and win £1,000 in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Right, welcome back. It's time to pay the bills. And yes, there's a plot twist in the Loserpool world because Cole... The dramatic Invincible run has finally come to an end. What have you got to say Woo! about that? <laughs> well, you can always trust the Gooners to let you down, can't you, Dan? If it's winning titles when we didn't want them to, they would win them. If you pick them to beat a team, they're obviously going to let you down. So I can't believe it. The run's come to an end. I blame it on being nice and giving Drew the, you know, feeling sorry for you guys and thinking, no, I won't pick Southampton, the obvious choice. I'll go out there. But hey. Every run's got to come to an end, so I'll start again. And if I can go another 10 or so games unbeaten, then the title's in the bag. Right. I will gladly accept your pity. Okay. No problem. <laughs> to help end the run, I will gladly accept your pity. It seem, seems like fighting talk from the two protagonists here. Right, so the table looks like this. Carl is stuck on 20 points after that uh, Burnley failure. Drew has closed it back now to 18 I'm just cut adrift. I'm on 10, so don't really worry about me. But it's time to pick again. So although we've got a split week, I'll give you either side. You can have any of the 10 matches that fall in between now and Chelsea versus Manchester United at the end of the programme. And Drew, you can serve first to keep the pressure up on Cole. Who's going to be your next guaranteed loser? Guaranteed loser, West Ham. They travel to the Etihad. West Ham have not played well. They've only taken five out of the last 18 points. Plus... Man City's best games this year have been when following a loss, and you know they're going to want to avenge 
only taking one point off of Spurs this entire year, a loss and a draw. So Man City are going to blow out West Ham. West Ham guaranteed losers uh, this weekend. Okay then. And Carl, what have you got for me? Can you bounce back after that disappointment? Well, I'm going to take the wimp route out here, Dan, I'm afraid, and go for Norwich. Yeah, I thought about playing Liverpool at home. So, yeah, I'm going to stick with a team that are not letting anyone down. And I'll say that there's no way Norwich get anything out of that game against Liverpool. Right. Okay. Hey, take your take your points where you can get them. Well, Smart. That's, that's right. And in that case, there's not a lot to pick on. But I'll go with um, Tottenham to beat Aston Villa. I think uh, Tottenham now with that big win over Man City, they'll be in the groove. Um, and I think they will get the better of Aston Villa. So, just to recap, Drew has gone for West Ham to lose away at Manchester City. Carl's gone for Norwich to lose at home to Liverpool. And I've gone for Aston Villa to lose at home to Tottenham. And they are our lose pool picks over this next game week. Right, there is plenty more to talk about. And we've got about 24, 25 minutes. So there's really lots to talk about. I think we've got seven, eight games still to go. No worries. Let's get busy. Right, talk about that Burnley game. And... Um, Drew, what can you say about Arsenal? I mean, anything positive, I don't know. 25 games, 13 draws, 10th in the table. It doesn't get any more bang average than that. And if Arsenal fans want to change, congratulations, guys, because you've got exactly what you wanted. Yeah, you know, Arsenal has seen pretty much nothing change since Arteta has come on. And that should be the case because the players are exactly the same. And it's not that Unai Emery was a terrible manager. I think maybe Arsenal was a bit... Uh, above his his pay grade, essentially. Uh, but bringing in Arteta, you haven't seen anything change, and you see these draws. And they are the king of draws this year, like you mentioned. 13, most in the league. It's been incredible. I think here's an interesting question that I think should sum up Arsenal at this point, without even talking so much about the game, is who deserves more playing time from here on out? 18-year-old Gabriel Martinelli... Or rec- club record signing, Nicola Pepe. <laughs> I think juxtaposing those two together show how Arsenal is so out of whack right now. In terms of bringing in players, they don't really know where to spend money, how to spend money. They can't really attract the top players in the world. But since they're Arsenal, they're going to have to pay a lot. right? When it comes to young players, uh, some of the academy guys, not Martinelli, but uh, academy guys plus Martinelli, some of those guys, they're trying to blood them in. And should they do it? Should they focus on them if they're going to come up big like Martinelli has? Or even if you have to kind of go through some of those growing pains and mistakes? I think that's how bad Arsenal is right now in their rebuilding phase. And so against Burnley, of course, they weren't able to score. They thankfully didn't concede, something they have uh, done quite a bit of this season. But that's where Arsenal is right now. They're a team that has no identity, isn't going to change at all this season, and you're going to continue to see very frustrating matches like this against a team that that undoubtedly they should be able to beat Burnley. Even though it's Burnley at home, Arsenal should be able to beat them. Well, Carl, we mentioned Burnley a few weeks back, and they've made us look very, very silly, haven't they? Because no one really would have envisaged them getting seven from nine points, especially with three tough fixtures on the fixture schedule. No, as you say, you completely made us look like fools because no way could I see them going to Old Trafford and getting a result from there. You kind of obviously backed Arsenal to beat them. But then obviously, you know, Burnley have been very clever and kept the grass a certain length because, you know, that that can really mess Arsenal up. <laughs> you know, if the grass isn't the right length, you know, that really causes Arsenal a problem. So they've done yeah. their homework there. Um, that's probably been scouted at training, you know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> they really have come out, you know, and kind of 
they needed to, didn't they? They were in a real bad run. And the way it was looking, you kind of started worrying, could they get dragged into that relegation race? They've put in some really good performances, performances that will spread confidence throughout the team. And you kind of feel now they could be getting themselves in a groove where they suddenly put a, a run together that could see them comfortable, you know, towards the end of the season and not get dragged so far into that um, relegation race. But some really good performances and how they didn't get the three points this weekend, only a crossbar and a lick of paint can tell you and, and how he misses from there, I do not know. And then, you know, that's put it this way. If that had gone in, Arsenal, that puts Arsenal in an even bigger tailspin than they are already because, as you say, nothing's changed. It's the same old Arsenal. You know, they, they don't know what their best side is um, and, and they really need to sort themselves out and, and get stuff moving in the right direction. But Burnley, full credit to them, you know, that they, they've made us eat our words, haven't they? Absolutely. Right, enough of that ball draw. Let's go to Saturday because there were some blinding matches. And the first up, Cole, Vicarage Road. Now, you get the feeling Nigel Pearson may have had some choice words for his players after that capitulation to Everton. Yeah, I mean, a great start for them, wasn't it? And and the way Watford had been playing, you kind of felt getting that good early start, you could see them go on and just win the game. And they looked so comfortable. You know, you just thought, yeah, the win is on here. Everton were looking a bit of a mess. But just goes to show, you know, one goal can really turn a game in this league. And, you know, Watford just suddenly, you know, that first goal goes in. They're all over the shop and you can just see that panic has set in. And from that point on, you know, not doing their jobs, you know, at set plays and picking up the right man and making sure they're on it. And next thing you know, they're staring down the barrel of, of losing the game that they should really have won. Um, Everton won't believe their luck. But, you know, Pearson's got them going in the right direction at least. So, you know, they, they will really see that as points dropped. And if they want to stay up, they can't afford to drop any points, especially in that sort of situation at all. And Drew, obviously the focus will be on the Watford collapse, but how much credit does need to go to Everton, especially as they finish the game with just 10 men? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Everton, you know, really had to show their determination in this match. Because like you said, Fabian Delft got sent off for two yellow cards in the span of like 10 or 15 minutes. And yet they were still able to hang on on the road. So I think you have to give credit to Everton, who they weren't great in this game throughout. Right, they were able to get two headers uh, from Yerry Mina in stoppage time in the first half. That's what really got them back into the game. Um, and so, I, I think you have to give credit to Ancelotti for being able to to keep his team up at halftime, being able to to use that to kind of springboard them into the second half and play better, and then survive with ten men. So Everton are getting a lot better this year, um, and you have to give them credit for taking advantage of the collapse of Watford because I don't think that happens under Marco Silva. So I think credit to Ancelotti, credit to the to the squad, because they're playing much better now. And they're back to mid-table, where they should be. Exactly. Carl, if we stay with Everton, it does seem like the appointment of Ancelotti is looking to be an inspired one. I mean, they're not really going to do anything remotely special this season, but he has sort of saved it from being a shipwreck, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's come in now, hasn't he? And as you say, if you're an Everton fan, before he was in you were probably sitting there thinking, wow, where are we, where are we actually going to go from here? Because things are not looking good. He's come in, kind of turned the ship a little bit. And I guess what it does do if you're an Everton fan, it kind of now gives you hope for next season, doesn't it? Because you're kind of thinking, right, he will need a summer, um, you know, see if he gets back 
the way he should be. And let's face it, he's a big-name manager where you're thinking, well, he can attract certain types of players to come and play for him. So if you're Everton now, you are sitting there thinking, well, actually, maybe the future's, you know, turning the way we want it to because, you know, this manager at the helm, results are turning. And if we get a summer where he can get the players in he wants then who knows? And maybe they actually start putting a serious challenge together for, you know, maybe even say top four, but definitely top six. And then, you know, if they can build on that again, then, you know, they've got a new stadium possibly in the pipeline. So you would start to think, well, actually, maybe the good times are not that far away if we do the right things. Yeah, I think Everton have got to look at Leicester as their inspiration because 12 months ago, they appointed Brendan Rodgers, didn't they? They had that betting in period and they're flying. So like you say, if they get their summer correct in terms of transfer strategy, which has been sometimes their undoing, or actually really their undoing um, on Merseyside, that's going to be really crucial. But if they do get it all lined up, then like you say, top six, maybe top four, then that's not off the table either. Drew, we go back to Watford and I think it's fair to say the new manager bounce has ended, but what a bounce it was and it has certainly given the Hornets a fighting chance of staying up, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in this game, there was a collapse from Watford. But I think you can still take some positives from that. And they've been playing much better throughout this entire period under Pearson so far. And so now, for them, they're still in the relegation zone, but with a ton more points. And now they're just behind teams, so they're definitely in the fight. I think for Watford, the key question is, are they going to have more games like this at home? right? Because they're not going to be able to afford those. They have to get as many points at home as they can because they have a match at home against Liverpool. Well, there's no way they're taking three points there, and they're probably not going to take one. So they're going to have to take advantage of home matches. They can't afford to blow any more just like they did against Everton. If they can do that and reverse that and win would be preferable, but at least draw, then I think they have a chance to stay up. But it's going to be a real hard battle. And Pearson is going to be screaming at them with a lot of choice words <laughs> if they have another collapse like this. Absolutely. Right, another fantastic game is at the London Stadium. And Carl, when West Ham 3 went up, you would have thought, really, West Ham would have got over the line with ease. But then you remember, West Ham's defence are quite good for an error when required. Then they gave away, what, three in all fairness. So Brighton, they must have thought that Christmas come, well, not early, but a little bit late than what we had last month. Yeah, it's been West Ham's downfall season, isn't it? You know, defensively, you know, one minute they had a goalkeeper who, you know, looked like he was a, you know, a Sunday league keeper being thrown in at Premier League level, uh, dropping the ball left, right and centre and not able to hold anything. And that was costing them, you know, massive points. Now, obviously, you know, you've got defenders that are making the sort of errors that they made this weekend. And and in at the end of the game, they're in and actually lucky to come out of it with a point because right at the death, you know, Brighton managed to pull a free kick out of the bag where, you know, apart from a great save from Fabianski, they could have ended up losing that game. And from 3-1 up, they should have seen that game out and just, you know, shut up shop, nothing silly now. We get some vital points on the board, but they don't, you know, those errors creep in. And I'm afraid if you're going to defend like that in the Premier League, you are going to get dragged into a relegation battle. And, you know, let's face it, it that could be the sort of stuff that sends you down. Uh, you know, their only saving grace is that Fabianski's back because if you had the defenders now playing with that goalkeeper behind them, then I would put all my money on them getting relegated. Fabianski, you know, is a great goalkeeper. And if they can just sort that defensive, you know, errors out, then they may be OK. But, 
I think it's worrying times if you're a West Ham fan because I don't think Moyes is the sort of manager that suddenly makes you, you know, if you're looking at Everton, they're possibly thinking their future is going to be good. I wouldn't be, you know, sitting there as a West Ham fan now with Moyes at the helm thinking, wow, this guy will massively turn it round, you know, give him some time. I'd be sitting there very worried. And Drew, I guess credit does need to go to Brighton because when you're 3-1 down, and especially with Brighton's away form, you would have probably thought, OK, the heads might drop. You know, there's nothing really in the tank for us. But, you know, it was a draw that probably felt as good as a win in those circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for Brighton, the way they played, especially in the second half with and, and who scored in Pascal Gross and Glenn Murray, you know, it kind of looked like Chris Hutton's Brighton. It didn't really look so much like the Brighton of this year. Um, but, you know, credit to them for taking advantage of an own goal from West Ham, which kind of helped kick off uh, the comeback and taking advantage of a team that's been vulnerable. Right. West Ham's played like they've West Ham has been playing like they have a desire to play in the championship next season. And so for Brighton to be able to to take advantage of that and take a point on the road, that's pretty good for them. That's something that they can definitely use to help them uh, stay out of the relegation dogfight. So for Brighton, good job on their part. Carl, if West Ham do go down, it could be Bournemouth that stay up at their expense. Now, they've won back-to-back matches, but is it too early to say they turn the corner? Yeah, I, I do. I, I, you know, I don't think the performances uh, have kind of been, you know, as good as they would have liked, even though they've got, but, you know, getting the wins is the main thing. I still think, you know, obviously there, you know, there's some still injuries that they haven't got back in the side yet that, that could hurt them. I think Aki coming back is massive for them. So if there is a chance, I think having him back it is vital. Um, but I still think it's a little bit early if you're if you're a, Bright- a Bournemouth fan, you won't be sitting in now thinking, no, we're out of this, we'll be okay, it's not a problem. I still think you're thinking it could just take one bad result to put us in a spin again, and then you know we are really struggling. So a couple of really good wins, but I, I wouldn't say they're out of danger just yet. Well, Drew, if you're Eddie Howe, are you once again having a word with Jefferson Lerma? That's nine bookings and one red card this season alone. He's nothing short than a nightmare in terms of discipline, is he? Yeah, he he looks like he went to the Fernandinho School of Tactical Fouling but didn't learn anything. <laughs> you know, with Jefferson Lerma, the problem is because where he's playing, right, he has, he has to aid and protect and help that back line. But if he's going to continue to put himself in jeopardy with yellow cards – then he can't be as aggressive defensively as he needs to be, and that's a big problem for Bournemouth. So he's really hurting himself and hurting the team, and he's a big liability to, to, to have out there. So for Eddie Howe, you have to sit him down and be like, dude, no more, not the mas, no more. You have to stop because if he's going to get sent off again and again, that's going to really hurt Bournemouth, right? Against Aston Villa, a team that's in the relegation battle themselves, you can get away with that. You know, as you go up against some better teams that are, you know, not even battling relegation, let alone just the teams at the top end of the table, you can't afford to be playing with 10 men. They're going to take advantage of you. And so Jefferson Lerma, he's got to get better at avoiding yellow cards. He's got to do something so that he's not always a liability to the team. And Cole, Aston Villa, they've reached the League Cup final, but that could be something of a poison chalice, couldn't it? Because if you look at finalists over the years, you've got Sunderland, Birmingham, got to the final, got relegated. So maybe celebrations, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking, oh, an extra game. Yeah, you'd want to get the job done, don't you? Premier League survival is their ultimate. 
Um, obviously, you know, if they got to Wembley and managed to pull off the shock of all shocks and win that game, then, you know, that that's great for them as a club. But obviously, football clubs nowadays, the Premier League survival is where it's at. Um, so I think they'd probably, as you say, gladly give up that final appearance if you told them, you know, pick pick one, either Premier League safety or a League Cup final appearance. They'd probably snap your hand off for the Premier League safety and another shot at it next year. Um, but you do worry about them at the moment because, you know, it's Grealish is keeping them going and keeping them in games. If he was to suddenly get injured or, you know, let's face it, he won't be there next year. So trying to replace him, um, I think they've got, you know, that that will be a real struggle for Aston Villa at the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I still think they're in big trouble. So as you say, nice to be in a final, but I think their priorities are going to try to be get that survival. But it's not looking good, I'm afraid. And Drew, what's going to be the under-over on goals in the League Cup final? Considering Man City pumped them with six, what, a few weeks ago, can it be one of those dreadful days at Wembley for Villa? Yeah, definitely can. I think it depends on... Manchester City's form going into that match because and of course you know who plays and all of that but Manchester City have always been best this year after a loss and so if they enter that match very upset very angry looking to prove a point then it can definitely be a long day for Villa because I mean if they surrender two goals to Bournemouth Manchester City can definitely route them again as they've done already this season so yeah Aston Villa are gonna have to watch out and Sheffield United, Carl, I mean, it wasn't a pretty win on Saturday. A gift again, quite a literally walking the ball over the line. But they were fifth at the end of Saturday, sixth by the end of the weekend. They're in for the duration now, aren't they? They're not going anywhere. Yeah, no, you know, they've been the surprise package this season, haven't they? And they've been well worth it because they're a really good side. Um, and as you say, again, not, not pretty this weekend, not the most exciting game. But Palace is a tough place to go. Um, you know, some bigger sides have slipped up there. So, yes, you know, you keep a frame one over the line always helps, but they're doing a really good job at the moment. And you can actually see, you know, Europa League plays. And again, we ask that question because if you talk to Burnley fans, they'll probably tell you they wish they hadn't got you know, Europa League berth when they had that great season. But you think, you know, Sheffield United should really be eyeing up at least the um, UEFA Cup run next season. Whether that causes them a massive problem the following season, who knows. But hey, your first year in the Premier League and if you can manage to get a Europa League spot, then that is potential manager of the year stuff there. While Drew, not doing the business, are Palace. They've now failed to win any of their last six matches and all of a sudden they're looking over their shoulders rather than up the table. Yeah, for Crystal Palace, once again, they failed to score. And that's been their problem all year, is they cannot score. That's why they went out and got Cenk Tosa. Not that he's a prolific goal scorer, but they had to address their attack. But it failed them once again. Now, Sheffield United has been solid this year defensively, so give them some credit on that end. But Crystal Palace, if they can't score, there's going to be some some tough games ahead. And they might be slipping a little bit farther down the table than I think they expected, especially this season when they reached as high as fourth, I believe it was. Crystal Palace, they got to get on the score sheet and they got to start getting some goals if they want to be comfortable this season. Right, so there's a couple of board draws that I'll take myself. So Manchester United versus Wolves, nothing really to write home about from either side, really. Bruno Fernandes 
looked decent enough, but I think, you know, too early to make any real judgments after one match. But United, don't worry, they've got Odin Agarlo in the ranks, so they'll be absolutely fine, he says. And Newcastle versus, <laughs> <laughs> and Newcastle versus Norwich, I didn't even watch the match today, so I can't even tell you anything that happened about it because it was just a board draw by all accounts. So there's no point asking you any questions either. Thankfully, though, that just fits in within the 60 minutes. So well done to all of us. Right, that is it. So bit of admin. As always, if you like the show on Apple, leave a review, get us up the league table. And of course, I need to thank my fantastic duo, as always. Drew, thank you ever so much for your efforts, mate. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Always enjoy talking about it. And uh, Carl, cheers to you for finally losing in uh, Loser Pool. Just wanted to remind you of that one more time. The battle lines have been drawn. <laughs> it is game on. And Carl, as always, thank you for your time, mate. No, mate, really enjoyed this one. Drew, I'm afraid if I see you in the tunnel, uh, there's a piece of pizza coming your way. Um, and, you know, we'll get this rivalry up and running proper Arsenal United style. Sounds good to me. Right, I'm going to have to try and keep a harmonious dressing room until the end of the season. Right, Right. okay, that's for me to work out. Anyway, with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network.